Good morning again. Scripture reading this morning is from Titus chapter 2, verses 1 to 15. You must teach what is in accord with sound doctrine. Teach the older men to be temperate, worthy of respect, self-controlled, and sound in faith, in love, and in endurance. Likewise, teach the older women to be reverent in the way they live, not to be slanderers or addicted to much wine, but to teach what is good. Then they can train the younger women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled and pure, to be busy at home, to be kind, and to be subject to their husbands so that no one will malign the word of God. Similarly, encourage the young men to be self-controlled. In everything, set them an example by doing what is good. In your teaching, show integrity, seriousness, and soundness of speech that cannot be condemned, so that those who oppose you may be ashamed because they have nothing bad to say about us. Teach slaves to be subject to their masters in everything, to try to please them, not to talk back to them, and not to steal from them, but to show that they can be fully trusted, so that in every way they will be they will make the teaching about God, our Savior, attractive. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age, while we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself to us, to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. These, then, are the things you should teach. Encourage and rebuke with all authority. Do not let anyone despise you. This is the word of God. So I'm going to start with a a bit of background on the text that Norma read for us. Uh, The book of Titus was a letter written by Paul to a man named Titus. And Titus was uh, one who worked with Paul. He'd been on missionary journeys with Paul. And the occasion for this letter was that uh, Paul and Titus had been to the island of Crete. And they had uh, set up a church there. They had uh, brought the gospel to the people of Crete. And they had established a church there. Paul had gone on on his own or perhaps with another to move on to further the gospel in other regions. And he had left Titus on the island of Crete. The island of Crete, the people of Crete had a bit of a reputation. um, And it was not a good reputation. Uh, So Paul felt it necessary to leave Titus on Crete to help them establish this church and uh, give them instruction on how to set up leadership of the church, uh, who should be running the church, and how to just go about Christian living. So that's the, the background. That's where we get the book of Titus. Paul is writing to encourage Titus to continue the work that he is doing on the island of Crete. 
Uh, we're skipping over chapter 1. We're going to jump right into chapter 2, and next week we'll be looking at the third and final chapter of Titus. Uh, chapter 1, a bit of uh, an overview of that, just so you know what we're jumping over. Again, it's this, um, this idea of what needs to be set in place for a new church to thrive. So we get in chapter 1 a list of qualifications for elders and church leadership, and then this idea of the, uh, the reputation of the Cretans. Uh, one of the, uh, as it says in uh, chapter 1, uh, verse 12, it says, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. That was the reputation of the people of Crete. Uh, that's what Paul and Titus had gone into. That's what Paul had left Titus in. So there's a, that's a bit of the background. And because of this, Paul has found it very important to say, this is the type of character you need for the leadership of your church, uh, what they need to be. And that's what we see in chapter 1, uh, which is particularly for the leadership. Chapters 2 and 3 go beyond that to what the church body as a whole should be, what they should represent, and that's where we're really going to dig into things today. So the first 10, chap- ten verses of chapter 2 are very much what uh, is often referred to as orthopraxy. Uh, it's a, a rather large word. It's uh, often used in academic circles. The two words that are quite commonly used together, we have orthopraxy and orthodoxy. Uh, both come from sort of the same root with the ortho, um, and the ortho is the, comes from the Greek root word meaning correct or right. So the orthopraxy is the correct practice, the correct acting and living of life, and the orthodoxy is the correct belief and the correct faith, the correct understanding of what it is we believe. So Paul, after laying out the the, what, the example of what church leadership should be, jumps right in to the orthopraxy, the correct acting, the correct living out of faith, the correct action for what people, the people of the church should be. And he starts, uh, he starts by dividing it into groups based on gender and age. He starts with a, with a message to the older men. Uh, to be sober, sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. We see here that this uh, this idea of self-control, righteousness, um, sound in their faith and love that comes right out in the very first grouping, and those same themes follow all the way through the older men, the older women, the younger men, the younger women. And then he jumps into a section on slaves or bond servants as well. And throughout all of that, we see these common themes of being self-controlled, being sober-minded, and to sort of generally sum it up is to be good at loving other people. All of these things help us to love other people. That's the general theme of all of this. And with that, we then dive deeper into these sections. As one commentator puts it, uh, the description for the, the older men and the older women, um, 
he describes it and he uses the wording, a seriousness of purpose has, a seriousness of purpose particularly suits the dignity of seniors. Um, so, I mean, that's a, just one way of looking at it, but he's saying this is, there's a purpose. And again, he, this is specifically here to the older men and women is the way it's written, but that works not just for that group. That applies to all. The commentator goes on to say, in light of that, uh, yet a gravity, so the, the idea of this purpose and the seriousness of purpose, is the gravity of that must never be consume, confused with gloominess. We cannot let our, the, the seriousness of the purpose that we have been given by Christ get to a point that it makes us gloomy or it makes us appear so serious that we can't have fun. And as I said, that's not true just for the seniors, but also for the young men and the young women. As Christians, we have been given an incredible message to share with the world. And that message, the gospel, the good news of Jesus' love and forgiveness and sacrifice for us, is a serious and important message that we must take seriously. We cannot underestimate the power and the importance of that message. But the message itself is one of good news, of joy, of love. So we cannot let the seriousness of the message defeat the content of the message, which oftentimes we get so caught up in, we need to make sure that we're giving this message and we're laying things out. It's A, B, C, D. We need to do this, this, and this. And we let that overwhelm the message itself. And the message is joy. The message is love. If we're portraying a message of love and joy in a way that is so serious it becomes gloomy, it's no longer a message of love and joy. So we need to always keep in mind that there's, as serious as it is, there's a lightheartedness to this. There is gladness in what God has done for us. So that's a bit of an ex- expansion on the, the, the message, particularly to the older men, as it applies to all of us. We then get into a pe- section in this passage that when I, uh, I gave Sharon the scripture reading for the bulletin earlier this week, and she read through it, and her first comment to me was, are you looking for trouble with this passage? Uh, and we, we get to that section now. So, and, and no, I was not looking for trouble when I selected this passage. Uh, and, and I hope I do a good job of explaining it and uh, going over this, uh, this next section, which can be quite controversial in today's world. So again, to the older women, it says, here's the, uh, likewise to the older men, be reverent in your behavior, don't slander, um, don't be slaves to much wine. So in essence, the same thing again of be sober-minded. Don't let yourself be caught up in the things of the world. Keep your faith at the... uh, at the center of the way you live your life and act out of that. Then we see the, the instruction to the older women to teach the younger women what is good. And this is where we hit the really controversial stuff. There is that list in there of teach the younger women to love their husbands and their children, be self-controlled, pure, 
And so far, that doesn't seem too controversial. Then we get working at home, uh, kind, not so controversial, submissive to their husbands, borderline controversial, depending on how it's interpreted. So this is where we get, we get this list, and that's what the older women are to teach the younger women to do. So now let's unpack that a bit and uh, try to get past what on the surface is quite co- controversial to something that we can actually take today and apply to our lives. Uh, it was interesting, when Bill was reading the passage that he read this morning and he uh, referenced, uh, it was talking about to their sons, and he said he, as he reads it, he reads children, keeping in mind that it was written in a very different cultural time and context. And that's what we have to keep in mind also as we look at this passage. Paul was writing to Titus at a specific point in history, at a specific time, in a specific culture. We need to have a bit of an understanding of that culture in order to then take what he has said and apply it to our culture today. Because if we look at the Bible through the lens of our culture, we are bound to be offended by it, we're bound to misinterpret it, and we're bound to mess it up. We're bound to mess up what God has told us regardless. God is an infinite God, and we speak in finite language. We're bound to get things mixed up no matter what. When we try to look at the Bible through the lens of our current culture, that just magnifies those issues. So the culture that uh, Paul wrote the book, The Letter to Titus, in was a culture in which women were rarely seen as much more than the property of men. They were firstly the property of their father, and then when they reached the age of marriage, they became property of their husband. And that was about the extent of what the culture's view of women was. Now, there were exceptions to that. Um, there were, there's always been the exception of the, um, the men who treated the women better. But in, as a general view, the culture saw women as property of the men. And thankfully, we are no longer in that culture. Uh, it is, uh, we have come a long way as humans, as people, as our culture... And there are always things where we can look back and say, well, if only it was like this. But there are always things where we look back and say, we have come so far and that is a good thing. So this culture where women were seen as property, they were also very unlikely to have any sort of real meaningful employment of value outside of the home. That is what the value of the woman was seen in the culture was she was the one to look after the things of the home. The man would go out and work, provide income, provide raw goods, whatever the case may be. The woman would then take that and provide for the home. That was the way the culture worked. So within that, this list that Paul gives is very much fitting to the culture. And in and of itself, yes, there are issues of the women being oppressed in that culture to some extent. But when the men of that culture follow the example of Christ, within that, the women are then honored and they are given respect and the dignity 
and the compassion and care that they need to provide for their family. So within the culture, this list was a good thing. This list was not necessarily a Christian or a Christian or Jewish or even religious list of what a wife was to be. This was the cultural expectations. This was this list was the standard to which women should be held, or not necessarily held, but this was sort of the gold standard. If you as a woman followed this list and did these things, loved your husband and your children, you were pure, um, in that sense that being uh, faithful to your husband, being... Basically, being a a good wife in the sense of loving, compassionate, that working at the home, providing within the home for your children, for your husband, that was the gold standard of the culture, which in and of itself at the time was a good thing. That was what women of the culture strived to be. And Paul saw that and said, this is a good thing given the place and time we are living So it's not a list that is inherently Christian. It is a list that is bound by the culture. And Paul saw that, and he saw that the culture had something that when acted out to its purest and best form was a good thing, and he encourages the people of Crete to follow that. When culture sets out something that is good, we don't say, well, that's worldly culture, so we can't do it. If the worldly culture and the world around us says this is good and what they say is good lines up with what God says is good, in essence, loving other people, we don't say, well, that's the culture around us. We're going to flee from it. We say the culture around us has got this thing right. Let's be the perfect example of doing that right. That's what Paul is doing here. He's taken a good thing within the culture and said, follow this. Do this, and do it to the best of your ability, and then everyone else that's not a Christian, that hasn't heard this good news and responded to it, will see that those who have responded to the good news of Christ's love are doing things to the best of the ability. They are setting the standard that we should all live to. That is appealing. It is to make the word of God and the gospel message appealing. That is what Paul, why Paul is saying these things. We need to do the same today. When our culture gets things right, we can't flee from it just because we say, well, that's the outside culture. When the culture does things right around us, we need to actually act out and set the example of that. When our culture chooses to show love to people, we need to be at the front of the line showing love to people. When our culture shows compassion for people, we should be the ones showing the most compassion. As Christians, we need to go out and embrace the things of culture that are good. We don't, we flee from the things of culture that are wrong. In this same culture, it was often seen as a virtue to be able to go out and drink to excess. And just before this, 
Paul makes it very clear that we should not drink to excess. He says, do not be slaves to much wine. Be sober-minded. So he's not taking culture in its entirety, but he's taking the good and saying, go out and be the best you can be within that. When culture gets things right, we as Christians need to set the example for the rest of culture. We need to be so much better at it than the rest that the rest of culture looks at it and says, these people are doing the things that we think are valuable and they're doing it even better, better than anyone else. There's something different there. I like that. I want to be a part of that. That's the reasoning that Paul gives. He gives this reasoning that do these things so that others cannot malign the word of God. So that others cannot revile the gospel. Do these things so that the gospel, the good news of Christ, becomes so appealing and they see it acted out that they want to be a part of it. So then we get into here, uh, we've, we've covered the older men, the older women, teaching the younger women to live these lives in a way that is respectful and loving of their husbands and fits with the culture, does what the culture is doing well and does so in a loving way. Then we get a very short uh, message to the young men. It says, be self-controlled. And that's all it says here to the young men. Now, Paul then goes on to Titus, who we don't know for sure, but he was young-ish. Um, he was not he was not an old, he was not an older man. He was not incredibly young, but we're presuming sort of middle age, so on that border. And Paul says to Titus, "As for you, here is what you are to do: you are to lead by example." So again, all of these distinctions are very similar in what they, we see: the young men, the older men, the young women, the older women. There's a common theme. The theme is to show God's love and make the message of the gospel appealing. When Paul talks to Titus, he says, lead by example. You go out and you teach and you rebuke when rebuke is needed. You encourage when encouragement is needed. And you teach and you live your life in a way that is blameless in a way that no one can condemn you for what you are doing. When your opponents come and try to put you to shame and try to put you down, live in such a way that they will have nothing to say about you, so in essence, they will be put to shame. Titus is to live his life as an example for others. So that those who oppose the message that Paul and Titus have brought to the island of Crete cannot say, well, he's saying all these things, but look at the way he's living. What he's saying is over here, and that's great, but he's living like that, and it doesn't line up. Paul says to Titus, speak the truth, speak the good news of God, and live the good news of God. 
Therefore, when this person comes and says, this is ridiculous, what do you mean you want me to put others before myself? What do you mean I should love other people and not just myself? Those are things that human nature doesn't want. Human nature wants to put us first. The message of the gospel, the message of Jesus, is to put ourselves after everyone else. When people come and say, what are you talking about? I'm not going to change my life to that. Show them, by example, what it means to put others first. That's the instruction to Titus to live this example for all of the others. After the brief interlude to personally to Titus, Paul jumps into the slaves. Um, oftentimes the, the Greek word is better trans- translated as bond servant. Uh, within our North American culture, we, we hear the word slave and our thoughts instantly go to the American South um, and what that was pre-U.S. Civil War. Um, Slaves in the day of Paul and Titus, the New Testament, would have been different than that, although not entirely. They were still owned. They were still oftentimes mistreated. But most of the time they were, they had a little bit of, they were able to have their own possessions, have things that were for themselves. And within that, Slaves then oftentimes were in places, put into places where it was very easy to uh, be manipulative, to, uh, to pilfer from their master. If a slave was sent to the market to pick something up for the master, their master, and they were given whatever currency it was, it would have been quite easy for them to come back with change and not give all the change, whatever the case may be. And Paul tells the slaves, be well-pleasing to your masters. Do not be argumentative. Do not pilfer. Do not take, even though you may have the opportunity to take what is not yours. Show good faith in all that you do. The reason, again, for that is so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior. Again, it's this idea of the way we act out our faith is to be appealing to those that do not share the faith with us. And even those that do share our faith. The way that we act out our faith is to be appealing to others. There's the intent of all of this, as I mentioned before, this orthopraxy, this correct practice, this correct doing of what the message of God is. It is so that no one can malign the work of God. It is for the sake of the gospel. It is for the sake of the good news of Christ's mercy and love that we are to live our lives out in accordance with to what God has instructed us. So we have that long section, those ten, I shouldn't say a long section, but in comparison, a long section, ten verses on how to live out our lives as Christian, on the correct orthopraxy of our lives. 
Then Paul writes three verses, verses 11 through 14. And these three verses are so jam-packed full of theological meat that it's amazing. Uh, I'm going to read them in just a moment here, but the, those three verses are the orthodoxy. Paul starts with the orthopraxy. Here is the right living. Here is the right way to act out our faith. And then he jumps into the orthodoxy, the correct belief, the correct understanding of the faith. He says, all of these things are great. All of these things, the way you live out your life, is so that the gospel, the message of God is appealing. And now let me give you the essence of the message of God. And then Paul writes, starting in verse 11, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. So there we go. There's the start. That's the start of it all. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. The appearance of the grace of God is the appearance of Jesus Christ. It is Jesus, the human manifestation of God on earth, That is the appearance of the grace of God. God has made his grace known to humankind in a very real and tangible way. And he has brought salvation to all people. God's salvation is not limited to a certain group of people. It's not limited after Christ. God does not limit himself to the Jewish people. He does not limit himself to any group of people. God's salvation is is open to all. Anyone who accepts it will receive God's salvation. Paul then goes on. uh, It's bringing salvation to all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. So the grace of God has come is provided salvation for all, and in doing so, God is training us to renounce the ungodly passions. He is training us to discern what is good within the culture around us and what is bad within the culture around us, and to renounce the bad. We cling to the good because all of the good comes from God. Anything that is good and pure is from God. God gives us the good and pure things in life. That is what we strive to do, but we renounce what is not. We renounce the things that come up from our own earthly, and as Paul would often refer to it, our own fleshly desires. We renounce that because we have seen the grace of God and it has brought us salvation. And we act that out in the age that we live. Paul writes to Titus almost 2,000 years ago. He says, in this present age, this is what we are doing. In our present age today, this is what we are doing. We have witnessed the grace of God. We have experienced the salvation that that brings. And as a result, we renounce the ungodliness. We renounce our worldly passions And we live in a way that is self-controlled. And we do that because we have experienced 
the grace of God. The grace of God has given us the ability to have God indwell with us. And as a result, we can then stand and live in self-controlled and upright lives. Paul doesn't stop there with this theological masterpiece of verses. Uh, Depending on the English translation, these three verses are broken up into multiple sentences. In the original Greek, it's one run-on long sentence, which Paul is infamous for in many of his letters. Uh, A lot of our English translations change it because it becomes almost impossible to read. But I get the feeling as Paul's writing this, he writes this, he says, God's grace has appeared, it's brought salvation, it's training us to, un, to live, to renounce ungodliness and to live upright, and then it's something else, oh yeah, and this, and this, and this, and I just picture him in excitement as he's writing about what God has done. So he goes on, uh, in the, doing this in our present age, and then waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of our, of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Paul writes this, he's like, oh yeah, and just so you know, God's grace is coming back and it's going to be visible again and we're going to see it in its full glory that time. So guys, Paul says, we're living in this hope, in this anticipation of what is to come still. There's not just what he's done for us right now, which that in and of itself is immense. And that in and of itself is more than we could possibly ask for. But Paul says, oh yeah, and then there's more. God's going to come back in his full glory. And that's going to be amazing. And then it's, oh wait, there's more. It's all, he's saying, God, our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, he gave himself. He's mentioned that uh, God has appeared, God's grace has appeared. And he's like, but wait a minute, I didn't really dig into that enough. God gave himself for us. God gave up his son, his, his own being. He suffered death. The creator and sustainer of life suffered death for us. And he did so to redeem us. He paid the ransom for our lives. He redeems us from lawlessness and he purifies him, purifies us to himself. He says, we are a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Paul has packed so much into this one sentence of the theology of what it means to be a Christian. What it means to believe in God's mercy and love and his glory and what that means for us today in this present age and the hope that that gives us for the future. Paul has given us all of that Meet after he's saying, here's how you live your life. And he's saying, and you do this because God is so good, he gave us all of this. He gave up his own life. He gave up his glory 
so that we can experience his glory in the future. As, as I read this, as I say, I just I picture Paul sitting there writing however that writing may be. And again, I'm in my current mind focusing back on to what uh, taking our current culture back into there. And I picture Paul sitting at a desk similar to mine in the office on the other side of the wall there with a pen and modern paper. And that's in my mind, which is totally not the way it was. But regardless of how I picture it, I picture Paul writing and being excited. God has given us such a great gift. We can't be gloomy about it. We can't get down about it. It's so good. We cannot let things of this world and the things of, well, this person's not doing this quite right, or, well, I don't know whether that church has it right. Do we have it right? I don't know. Regardless of whether we have it all right, the core is so good, we can't help but get excited about it. And that's what I picture here, is Paul so exuberant. And I, wanna, I want us to experience that as well. And I get glimpses of that as I read sections like this. I almost get giddy at times of, God, you are so good. How can I ever think, how, how can I ever be upset? And the world does provide us things to be upset about. But in the middle of that, God's love and joy is there. And we have that hope that, and that expectation that we will see the full glory of God. Finally, Paul ends this section with another encouragement to Titus himself. He says, Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority, let no one disregard you. And that then continues on into chapter 3, which we'll touch on next week. But Paul tells Titus to declare these things. And at the same time, that message is for all of us. Titus was just a man. There was nothing particular about Titus that made him any better or worse than any of us. If Titus can go and teach these things, declare these things, and use them to exhort and rebuke when necessary, so can we. Let's take this great message that God has given us, this great gift and go out and declare it. Declare it with joy. That's what the instruction to Titus is, is to go out and declare. Make this known. Do so by living out the life that culture around you sees it and says, what that person has, what that group of people has, is so good. I want that. I want to be a part of that. There is so much joy within that group of people. I want to know what's going on. I want to be there. That's why we act out. That's why we have the orthopraxy, the right doing, the right action. Because when we do those things, others around us can't help but notice.
And when they see that, they start to ask why. And when they ask why, then we can say, because God is good. And we can get that excitement of God has revealed his mercy. He has revealed his grace. He has given us the ability to renounce the evil things of the world and cling to what is good. It's not just say that's wrong. It's easy to point out the things that are wrong and say that's wrong. But it's that's wrong and this is good. Let's do that. That is the message that we see in this chapter. And that is the encouragement for us as we go out this week and into our lives is to act in a way that is so appealing those around us can't help but see the glory of God within it. So with that, I'll uh, pray, and uh, I'll pray for the uh, communion that we are about to take with one another as well. Um, let this as well be a, a celebration, a joy in remembering the goodness and the sacrifice of God. God has given us so much. He gave his life so that we might live. And here we uh, at Sutherland, as we always say, this is a table of inclusion, not exclusion. If you know Christ or would like to, you are welcome to partake. And do so knowing that God's glory has been revealed in part and will be revealed in whole. Uh, I'll pray and then I'll ask the ushers to come forward. Heavenly Father, you are such a great and amazing God. You have given us so much. We thank you that you show us love and mercy and compassion. We thank you that you gave up your life for us and that you did not remain dead, that you came back, that you are alive and that you continue to sustain all life. I thank you that on the, uh, the night that you were betrayed, you gave us an example. You showed us what it means to be servant leaders. You washed the feet of your disciples. You showed us what it means to love. And you gave us a way to remember you. We thank you for these emblems that you have given us, this bread and this cup. We ask that as we take of it this morning that you would bless us, that you would remind us of what it means to worship and honor you, and to have reverence for the, the sacrifice that you have made. Let us, to, let us know what it means to have that, that sense of purpose and that seriousness of purpose, and to know that, but let us to know that let us know that and act that out with joy and thanksgiving and praise for you lord we ask that we as we take this bread and this cup that you remind us what it means to live in community and what it means to serve you in jesus name amen